We have the opportunity at this time to open your Bibles to Psalm 67. As I read this psalm and I thought about the the theme here, what this psalm is dealing with, I was reminded of something we read about all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Because in Genesis 12, our God, whose name is Yahweh, made promises to Abraham. He said to him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it took a while for God to keep these promises. In fact, it was 25 years after God spoke this to Abraham, before God even gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a son. This time when he told them this, when he made these promises about making Abraham a great nation, Abraham was a 75-year-old man who had no children. His wife was 60 years old. They had no children. God said, I'm going to give you a child. In fact, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. It took 25 years before that began to be fulfilled. Of course, Just having one son doesn't make for a nation. It took 400 years beyond that before God turned that one son, Isaac, into a a great nation of people numbering likely in the uh, millions. Of course, over the centuries, God blessed Abraham's descendants so that his children... His family became the nation of Israel. They even spoiled that great kingdom of Egypt. They drove the Canaanites out of their land. They settled there and they became an influential people. If you were doing your Bible reading with us in 1 Kings this week and you read about Solomon and you read about how the Bible tells us that that people came from every kingdom of the world to Solomon, wondering, marveling at his wisdom and the affluence of the society that he had built. We read there that he made silver so common in Jerusalem that silver was like stones. I told the kids, it's like going out and picking up gravel on the side of the road. That was what silver became in Jerusalem. It was so abundant. It shows the affluence of Solomon's uh, reign as it, uh, in the nation of Israel there. Clearly, God blessed Abraham's descendants. And even though over their history, God used other nations with great military powers to come in and conquer Israel at times and to punish them because of their sin, God never allowed them to be destroyed. They never ceased to exist as a nation. But when you think about their conquerors, think about the nations 
that came in over the centuries and conquered the Israelites. Like the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Philistines, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans. Each one of those empires, each one of those nations and great kingdoms have long ago ceased to exist. And yet, there is the people of Israel, the children of Abraham, who continue to remain a distinct people, a nation. God is true to His Word. But that the blessing, making them a nation, blessing them, making their, His name great, uh, all of those things, we see that in the history of Israel. But when you look at the last part of the promise, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We might wonder how exactly does that fit into the nation or the history of the nation of Israel. If God has faithfully fulfilled His word in the offspring of Abraham, then what does this mean? How was it fulfilled? Or has it even been fulfilled? These are important questions. Questions that I bring to your attention today because as we look at Psalm 67, they come into view. The writer of Psalm 67, who is not David, but is otherwise unidentified, clearly saw that God had chosen Israel as a nation. And He had blessed them according to His faithful love. But the writer of this psalm also saw that in that blessing that God had poured out on His people, in that very blessing, God set up the means by which He would fulfill that promise to bless all nations through Abraham and his descendants. And so as we read Psalm 67, it's very short, it's only seven verses. Less than 60 words in the original Hebrew language. And yet, it gives us a chance to see through the eyes of this Old Testament believer, whoever it was that wrote this psalm, how he understood God's faithfulness to keep His Word. And the fulfillment of the promise that He made to Abraham. And it gives us a chance then to consider ourselves, our own relationship to the Lord, and to the fulfillment of this promise. So let's read together Psalm 67. In fact, I invite you to read it with me. All right, Psalm 67, and begin there in verse 1. God, be merciful to us and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us. Salah. That your name, or that your way, I'm sorry, that, let's start over in verse 2. That your way may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Salah. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. 
Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now pray with me, if you will, this morning, and we'll ask God's blessing on us as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, again, we are so thankful that we have the word of God. Not just pieces of your word, not just uh, uh, parts of it as they do in some places in the world, but we have all of your word, the complete revelation of God given to us that we can have it, that we can read it, we can meditate on it and study it and know it. We are so blessed. Help us to treasure it this morning. Give us uh, just a love and, and, and a hunger and a thirst for your word this morning, and I pray that you would work in our hearts as we, as we hear it, as we read it, and then we study it. But I pray that you would use me as I speak to be able to very clearly explain and show what this psalm is speaking of and how it, it, it applies to our lives today. And then I pray that you'd help each one of us to be willing to come underneath the teaching of this truth, to submit our lives to it, to surrender ourselves to it, that we might trust you, and that we might be obedient to you this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's very little agreement when it comes to the division of this psalm. It's a prayer, a hope, a wish even, from the mouth of a godly man who believed in the promises of God and in his faithfulness to keep them. Psalm 67 reflects his own awareness of his relationship with God and his desire that all men would come to know God as he has come to know God. And that all men would experience the riches and glory that belong to every man or woman or child even, who trusts in the Lord. And so there's something here in this psalm, something special. The person who's writing here has seen the goodness of God. And once you see the goodness of God, you can't not see it. And you can't imagine life without it. And so the psalmist here prays and he hopes and he longs for the day when all men will see God just as He has seen God. And the psalm begins in a really interesting way. I don't know if you caught it when we read it. But if you look at verse 1 again, it sounds an awful lot like the high priestly blessing that the Lord gave Aaron, Moses' brother, Back in Numbers chapter 6, look at what he says here again. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Okay, If you were to go back to Numbers chapter 6, and we won't take time to turn there this morning, but if you were to go back there, you would see that God spoke to Moses and said this, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. 
So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Of course, again, uh, there in number 6, Aaron, when he repeats this blessing that God has given, is using the name Yahweh. Your Bible has it as Lord in all capitals. Here in Psalm 67, it's slightly different because he uses the more generic or more general title for God, Elohim, which is why it's translated God here, not Lord. But but the similarity between this verse and the priestly blessing is not accidental. The author of this psalm is intending for the Jews who read it and who sang this hymn to make the connection, right, with that priestly blessing. Certainly they would have heard it from the mouth of the priest many times as they gathered together to worship, as they came to offer sacrifices. They would hear the priest speak this blessing on them. And he would say, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. What a beautiful uh, benediction, a beautiful blessing that God gave to the high priest and said, you are to speak this onto, and you are to speak this to the children of Israel. We should notice too, Something significant about the purpose that Aaron and his sons were, uh, had in using this blessing. He said there back in number 6, as I read it, So shall they put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. God was saying this, The high priest, when you speak this blessing on the children of Israel, you are putting my name on them. It's as if you're stamping the, you're marking them with the stamp of ownership. When the priest would look upon the people of Israel and would recite this blessing to him, it was a way of saying, You belong to Yahweh. He is your God, you are his people. He has promised to bless you. So I'm blessing you because I'm only saying what God has already said of you. That's what the priest was doing. He was identifying that these people belong to God. He was speaking and that that, that blessing that he gave was a mark of ownership. It was a way for God's people to be reminded of how how God viewed them. Because God had chosen them. More than that, God intended to do good to them. That's what that blessing is about. God intended to do good for them. He intended to bless them. It really it helps to lay the foundation for what God's relationship was with His people. God was was 
positively oriented toward them. In other words, he wasn't uh, some harsh taskmaster who said, as long as you do what I want, we'll get along. He wasn't some petty god like so many of the other uh, nations around them who served these gods that, that one day wanted this and the next day wanted that and they could never make up their mind. And so the people never knew exactly where they stood or what to do to please that God. In fact, in this blessing, God's not asking for the people to please Him. He's saying to them, I am your God, you are my people, and I am going to bless you. That's how this relationship works. That's the arrangement here. I am God, you're my people, I chose you and I'm going to bless you. And so it's a positive relationship. It's a, it's a relationship where God's people could expect to receive good from Him, right? God's people can expect to receive good from Him and not evil. I wonder if we really believe that. I know how difficult it is sometimes for us to believe that. For us to see God as a loving Father looking down on His Son, desiring to, to bless Him and to strengthen Him and to speak good words to Him and to give Him abundantly. That's the relationship that God has established with His people. That's what this blessing is meant to bring to mind. And so the psalmist begins this prayer by reminding himself and reminding all of the people who are going to sing this song with him. He's reminding himself that he's a part of the chosen people of God. Chosen to receive heavenly blessings. Chosen to receive divine favor. But I would say this, along with God's blessing comes a very real responsibility. That's how theologian Alec Mochier put it. He said this, blessing puts us under responsibility. Whether it is that we respond to God, so respond to God's blessing that others see the difference in our lives, or that there is someone waiting to be told of this generous God. Whatever. Blessing is granted in order that the world may know His salvation. That's what verse 2 tells us. The psalmist invokes part of the priestly blessing to bring that to mind, but then he goes on to explain what, that, what the purpose is for that. Why did God bless Israel? We, I asked this question a couple weeks ago. Why did God choose Israel? What was it in them? Nothing. There was nothing in Israel that would make them uh, uh, appealing to God or would they have something to bring to the table. God didn't choose them because of that. He never chooses people because of what people bring to the table. God doesn't choose men and women because we're such great people. He doesn't choose you because you're so talented or you're so perfect or you've got it figured out. He doesn't choose you because you know what to do in every circumstance. God chooses 
God chooses His people because He's going to pour out blessing on them. Because He's going to favor them. And God chose Israel not because of Israel's inherent goodness or superiority to any other nation. God chose Israel to pour out His blessings on Israel, to show favor and His grace to them. But there was an even greater purpose involved. Because it wasn't just for their benefit. Verse 2 says this, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. You see, God's plan was that through Israel, the world would come to know His way and His salvation. So how is that divine promise to Abraham going to be fulfilled? When God says to Abraham, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed, that's exactly what He means. Through you. The blessings are going to come to you and your descendants, and then through you, they will be mediated to the nations. And so, the first thing that we see here in this psalm is this, that there is a desire for the nations to know God's grace. The psalmist, when he speaks, when he writes in this psalm, we get a picture of what's in his heart, and in his heart is a desire that all men would know what I know today. That God is good. That God is perfect. But that God is gracious and kind. That God brings salvation to the world. That is the message that I know. That's what I have experienced, the psalmist says. And I want everyone to know this. This is the purpose for which God has poured out His blessing on me is so that from me, that blessing can go out to the nations. God blessing Israel was a product of His relationship with them. And the psalmist here has tasted for himself the goodness of knowing God. His own heart then is turned toward the nations, toward those who do not know God the way He knows God. And he longs that they should know God's way. Here. In other words, know how God would desire them to live. And also to know God's salvation. Of course, this is the single greatest need of mankind. is to experience firsthand the saving power of God. Charles Spurgeon described it like rain that falls on the hillside. When rain falls on the hillside, it doesn't stay on the hill. It runs down into the valleys. The rain may fall on the hillside, but it runs down and it fills the valleys and allows them to be filled to abundance and grow. And they said it's the same thing with God blessing His people Israel. They experienced God's goodness so that all the world would see and know the Lord. That is the purpose that's the direction here. And this seems to be the purpose here. We come to the refrain in verse 3. We see the same refrain repeated in verse 5. 
The psalmist calls on all those who know God's grace to praise Him. Let the peoples praise you, O God. This is the purpose. God has poured out His blessing on His people so that His way and His salvation could be known throughout the whole earth. And then the psalmist says, listen, if you know, if you've experienced this, if you know what I'm talking about, then praise the Lord. Then shout to Him. Then lift your hands and rejoice and worship Him. Now there's a difference here. There's a shift in terminology. Because in verse 2, he uses the word nations. In verse 3, he shifts to a different term. The word nations in verse 2 is a word that, that definitely has the idea of the Gentile peoples, those who are not Jews, those who don't know God, those who are outside of the immediate blessing that God has poured out on Israel. All of the other people in the world who don't know God, that's what he's talking about in verse 2. That they would come to know God's way and His salvation. But then verse 3, he uses a different word. The word here is translated peoples in the New King James Version. And it's describing here people in their family or ethnic groups. Their tribes, if you will. And so, again, if it is God's will to pour out His blessing on the children of Israel, in order that the Gentile nations would see it and come to know the God that Israel worshipped, then He's calling here on all the families of the earth, all of the tribes, all of the groups of people all across the earth, in all their diversity, to come and to worship the Lord. Praise is the fitting and natural response of men who recognize God's saving grace. When we realize what God has done for us. When we realize that He didn't do it because He had to. That He did it because of His gracious love. Then praise and thanksgiving just naturally spring to our lips. The word praise here in verse 3, and again, everything I'm saying about verse 3 could apply to verse 5. They're identical verses. The word praise here includes the idea of lifting your hands in worship. Again, we get the picture of people from every tribe and every family across the world as they lift their hands and they sing and they praise and honor the Lord. Because they know His way and His salvation. And they rejoice in God's goodness. We come to verse 4, and there's another shift in terminology here. The word nations is used again, but it's actually a third term. It's a completely different term than what we've seen before. And again, here it's, it's translated nations because it has the, the idea of community. Now, why would the psalmist in just seven verses use three different terms for people, for groups of people? Why would he do that? Well, I think it's that the psalmist wants to emphasize that all people, 
whatever their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, their tribe, their family, or any other distinction we can think of, all people ought to worship the Lord. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your family is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what group you belong to. You should worship the Lord. That's what the psalmist is saying. But there's another reason in verse 4 why we ought to worship the Lord. Because He judges and governs righteously. I think that's cause for rejoicing. How often, how often do we look at human government and we think there's no hope for transparency. There's no hope for righteousness to win the day. When we look at our own government and our own system and as many blessings, as many uh, positive things that have been generated out of our government system in this country, over the last couple of centuries, we still look at what we have and we realize, wow, this is seriously broken. There are serious problems that are inherent here. Is there any hope that we'll ever get it right? Well, really, when we observe that, it ought to make us all the more ready to submit to divine governance, to God's rule and authority, because God's rule is righteous. His governance is always upright. No matter how good our intentions, the very best human government will still fail to establish and uphold justice for the oppressed. It will never happen. You can, you can choose any government, any style, any scheme, any mode of government you want. You will not ever see it. True justice, righteousness upheld in this world by man. It will not happen. It cannot provide the kind of guidance and the help that we need. And the psalmist here desires that the nations know God's grace, but there's something else that he desires. He desires that they submit to God's rule. Because until until the nations submit to God's rule, they will never know peace. And they will never know righteous judgment. Again, For evidence, simply look around you at the world. And it doesn't matter what government, what system we look at. They all, they all have the same problem at the root. The the problem at the root is they're all made by men. 
You want government that is righteous? You want government that is upright? You want justice to be done? There's only one place to find it. The kingdom of God. That's what God's kingdom offers. Righteous judgment. Righteous government. The prophets speak of the righteousness of the Messiah and His kingdom. You could take Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, for example. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Isaiah 11, the prophet speaks of a rod that will grow out of the stem of Jesse. That's the name of David's father, in case you didn't make that connection. A branch that grows out of his roots. And he says in in Isaiah 11, verse 5, that righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Again, think about all of the energy that is wasted trying to build the perfect government. Think about all the pain and the suffering that's caused when we try to find it. The revolutions. Even if they're quote-unquote bloodless. We endure revolution after revolution But for what? The nations of earth will never find peace until they bow the knee to the one who judges rightly. That seems to be the heart of the psalmist here in verse 4. That all the the different nations and peoples of the world would humble themselves and submit to the authority and the government of God. That's where gladness and joy come from here in verse 4. But there's still a third element to his prayer. His wish, if you will, for the peoples of this world, and it's found in the final two verses. He desires that the nations experience the fullness of God's blessings. Notice how he describes them there. Verse 6, the earth shall yield her increase. It's almost as if, up till now, the earth has been holding back. Of course, that fits perfectly with the way the Bible describes the effects of the curse of sin, right? Again, think back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Way back there in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rejected God's authority, They rejected and rebelled against God's rule, His governance in their life. And they defiantly ate the fruit that God had forbidden. What did God tell Adam? He said the ground was going to be cursed for His sake. He said, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. That's a radical change from the way God created it to be. When He created the earth and when He created man, He intended for there to be a cooperative effort. Man would guide 
Man would innovate, he would create and skillfully work. And the earth would cooperate, just yielding its natural productivity to man so that he would see great abundance and beauty. But sin brought corruption. Not just to man. You see, you need to understand this. Not just to, not just to men, but to the world. So that instead of cooperation, there's conflict. Instead of yielding her increase, the Bible tells us the earth groans and labors in the bondage of decay. That's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. When he says that the creation itself is eagerly awaiting redemption. Waiting for the day when the Lord comes to rule. The psalmist here is longing for that day. Not just when God's people, Israel, praise Him, but when all nations praise Him. Knowing His saving grace, submitting to His righteous rule. Why? Because the psalmist knows that something else corresponds to that. When, when we get to that day when the Lord is here to rule and exercise reign, when all of the peoples know His salvation and His grace, then the Lord will pour out His full blessings on the entire world. Again, it's not just the, the Jewish people who will experience abundance and satisfaction The description here is the earth yielding her increase. All the ends of the earth will fear Him. God, our God, our own God will bless us, He says. These people will know God. All people will know God. And God will pour out His blessing on the earth in abundance. This will, this will finally be able to enjoy creation the way God intended for it to be. The psalmist is looking for that day when the curse of sin will be repealed, when the nations will be in right relationship with God and enjoy the full magnitude of the divine blessings. And we as Christians today can agree wholeheartedly with the psalmist. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What else could that mean? Except for us to say, essentially, God, please return to earth and set up your kingdom so that all men will know your salvation, rule in righteousness and justice, and restore the world to its former created glory. This ought to be our heart's desire. Just as much as it was for this anonymous author of Psalm 67. Again, Charles Spurgeon said, Our prayer and our labor should be that the knowledge of salvation may become as universal as the light of the sun. And so let me ask you, when you think about how God has blessed you, How He reached down from heaven to save you when you were dead in sin. How He shined the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into your sin-blinded eyes. 
so that you could see how he bought you from the slave market of sin and set you free from bondage. Do you long for God to do the same thing to sinners around you? Do you pray for them to know his salvation? Do you pray for them to submit to his rule and his authority? Do you labor to show them the wonders of God's mercy and his grace that he's done in your life? There's definitely a continuity here in Psalm 67 with the the two previous Psalms. Back in Psalm 65, we were reminded of how all creation sings God's majesty and we are invited to join the chorus. In Psalm 66, we're urged to say, come and hear and I will declare what God has done for my soul. How can we possibly keep silent if God has done such great things for us and yet we do. Don't you realize the days are passing quickly? Before you know it, life will be gone and with it the opportunity to praise and worship the Lord. And with it, the opportunity to invite the peoples of this world to join us in singing and honoring and worshiping our God. I think it's clear that God intends that His people who have experienced the outpouring of His favor should be the instrument to show the whole world the way of God and His salvation. It's not something new. In fact, this is how God intends to fulfill His promise to bless all the nations of the world in Abraham. I don't want you to make any mistake here. God will keep His Word. When He said that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham, that's what He means. He sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to be born as a descendant of Abraham. Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate blessing for the nation of Israel. But He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of all men. When I say that, I don't mean that because Jesus Christ came, all men will be saved. What I mean is this, that anyone who believes that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, will be saved. And it makes no difference whether he is a Jew or a Gentile. When we read passages like Psalm 67, we're reminded that Jesus promised that he would return to earth and rule as king, reigning over the nations, turning back the curse of sin, restoring the earth to its abundance and fruitfulness. Of course, we're also reminded that those who are rightly related to Him, those who have submitted to His rule and come to know His salvation are the only ones who will take part in His kingdom. And so if you don't know the way of God, if you don't personally know His salvation, 
then I plead with you today to turn to Him, to cry out to Him to receive you. Today. Today, right now, He is pouring out His blessings. Blessings of redemption from sin. Forgiveness. Eternal life. He's pouring these blessings out on all who will trust in Him. And there is coming a day, this psalm clearly looks forward to it, when God will pour out His blessings on the whole earth. But between this day and that day, there's a day of judgment, of darkness and fear and destruction for all who have rejected and refused Him and His salvation. Don't put it off until it's too late. Seek the Lord while you have time. Know that He is merciful, that He is kind to all those who trust in Him. He will cause His face to shine on you. He will bless you. And He will do it so that the knowledge of His salvation may reach the whole earth. So I will say along with the psalmist, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray.